Thanks, David. Man, y'all are, this singing's amazing today. Thank you guys for that. What an encouragement. Put joy in my face, a lot of smiles around. Just love it. I love basketball. I love all things about basketball. I love to, I used to love to play it. I'm 45 now. I don't think I can. But I love every aspect of it. But probably my favorite thing now as I watch basketball is when there's an unexpected shot made. Junior high game and somebody heaves up a half-court shot and it somehow goes in. And what I love about it is that it surprises everybody and then immediately nobody is on opposite teams. When somebody at junior high game makes a three-quarter court or makes some ridiculous shot, everybody begins to cheer because it surprises us. It's out of the ordinary. The best shot I ever saw in my life didn't happen on a basketball court. It happened in Miss Brumley's sixth grade science class. We were doing homework. Everybody was supposed to be quiet. I was sitting behind my best friend, Levi Hill, we had finished our homework up. We were supposed to still be quiet. We were one of those kids, you know, that our goal was to finish first, whether it was right or not. Anybody else out there, right? We were like that. And we tried our best after we had finished our homework to be quiet, but we wanted to get the attention of our other friend, Concepcion Ugarte, five rows away on the complete opposite side of class. So we tried our best to do the loud whisper or the psst, hey, hey. And nothing was working. We figured Concepcion was finished with his homework too, but he just continued to look down at his desk. So my friend Levi was a little more creative than I was at attention getting. So he pulled a pencil out of his desk. And then he took that pencil and he took the cylindrical eraser, eraser out of the back. And he started to pretend like he was scratching the back of his head. You know where this is going. I was watching this unfold from watching the back of Levi's head. And then he launched the eraser across the room. It reached an apex of about six feet. Nobody looked up. Teacher didn't know it was coming. His aim was to hit Concepcion in the back of the head or the side of the head or the shoulder. But as we watched it unfold, as we watched this eraser fly through the air, the greatest shot I've ever seen happened because this eraser tip did not hit just Concepcion in the head or around the ear or hit near the ear, it landed perfectly exactly in his ear canal. <laughs> I mean, no other shot. It was unbelievable. A miracle shot, a one in a billion. All of a sudden, Concepcion starts to freak out like something has flown into his ear. A fly a gnat, a cricket, I don't know. But he starts to yell, I lose it. I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen, and I cannot control my laughter. My friend Levi in front of me who threw it was much sneakier than me, and he just simply put his head down on his desk and laughed into his arms. At the end of the moment, after the whole class had been disrupted by the magic eraser, <laughs> not a sponsor, um, <laughs> I was the one that got detention <laughs> because I disrupted the class with my laughter. Our text for this morning is coming from Romans 13, 1 through 7. And it's a text that seemingly comes out of nowhere. It's a surprise text. 
In Romans 12, Paul's been telling us all about living this altered, living sacrifice kind of life. That your life is an act of worship. Holy and pleasing. True worship. And then in verse 1 of chapter 13, he takes a shift. It's an offhand comment. It almost seems out of place because Paul, in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 13, suddenly starts talking about Christians and their response and their role to local and national governments. It's so disorienting maybe to some readers that some commentators for many years have even suggested that Romans 13, 1 through 7, because it's such of a surprise, has to be some later edition that somebody else wrote in. But I don't think so. And I don't think you think that. This morning, what we're going to do with a little bit of work on Romans 13, a little bit of context, I think we can make sense of what Paul is going to say here and see how his lining, his teaching will line up with what he said before and what will come after. So let's jump right in as we look at Romans 13, 1 through 7. He says this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now this comes out of seemingly nowhere. And as you can imagine with a text like this, in words like this about a Christian's response and responsibility in living in and under a nation and what we live in and under a nation state now, there are going to be a lot of all kinds of different takes concerning this passage. Hot takes, cold takes, bad takes. And periodically, Romans 13, 1 through 7, will show up and rear its head, as you can imagine, in damaging and even unchristlike ways. This is a passage that can be confusing. And it is a passage, because it can be confusing, that it can be abused. It can be abused from small churches to large churches, and it has been abused in those, and it's even been abused even up to halls of Congress across the world. In the past, Romans 13, as an example, has been used as a proof text for why slavery should continue. It was used as a proof text in the 1930s in Nazi Germany as a proof text for why Nazism was good. And of course, there's more. In the recent past, Romans 13 has shown up. I'll give you a couple examples of these by quoting without using people's names, but quoting a couple people 
who have influence. And Romans 13 and the way that they use it. And I want you to hear this so that we can start to work on context and see if there is actual something else being said by Paul. Our first example comes from a high-ranking government official a few years ago in 2018 where he used the words of Paul in Romans 13, 1-7 to justify unjust treatment of children who were trying to cross the U.S. border from Mexico. He paraphrased Romans 13 by saying this. He said, Romans 13, we must obey. We must obey the law of government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. He was using Romans 13 there to say, whatever we do as a government, therefore must be obeyed because it must be rubber stamped by God. Another man, a well-known pastor and preacher in Dallas, said the following. He used Romans 13 this way, and this is his quote here. He says, Romans 13 gives the government the authority to do whatever they wish, whether it's assassination, capital punishment, or evil punishment to quell the actions of other evildoers like Kim Jong-un. Okay. Now, whether you nod in agreement with those two statements, or whether those two statements may raise your blood pressure a little bit, I think all of us this morning can agree on one thing. We all desire to be faithful and biblical in our interpretation of Scripture. Amen? Amen. I hope we do. And so we must be faithful and biblical in our approach to Scripture here as well. So what is the correct way of interpreting this passage? Is it a rubber stamp for government to do whatever and we must be able to say, well, that must be God's wish or God's will? Well, let's look at this. But before we really dig in, let's remember a couple of things. First of all, let's remember context. And two contextual points I want to make is this. First is first audience priority matters. In any text you read of the Bible, the Bible, again, was not written to you. It was written for you. Romans was written to Roman Christians. And we get the benefit of getting to read it for us. So any interpretation we give to any scripture can only be accurate if that interpretation is coherent with the first audience that heard it. Or in a simpler way, a way to say that is if you think the Bible says, sorry, if what you think the Bible says doesn't match up with what the original audience understood and applied, you're most likely off in your interpretation. That's the principle of first audience priority. Secondly, when we deal with context, Romans 13 cannot be a curveball. It has to continue Paul's line of teaching from Romans, and particularly Romans chapter 12. If not, Paul is going to end up contradicting Paul. And unless we're comfortable with opening the can of worms of Paul contradicting himself, we must then assume that Paul is intelligent enough to remember what he just wrote. Paul didn't just somehow take a nap when he finished Romans 12 and then go, well, let me make up something about the government here. We have to have those two harmonized. So we have to remember those two things. What did the first audience hear? And 
We've got to believe that Paul doesn't contradict himself because we believe that Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, if, those, if that's true, we can be sure that chapter 13's meaning harmonizes with chapter 12 and also with what he's going to follow this with, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13. So let me just take a moment, and we're going to dig. This is more of a teaching-type sermon than it is a rah-rah sermon. So hang with me for just a moment, and let's answer the question, what is Romans 13, 1 through 7, really saying? And first, what he is saying is he is speaking about policing not government overarching policies. This is policing, not policies. Paul here in Romans 13, 1 through 7, is not writing governments a blank check to do whatever they wish because God has somehow ordained it. Nor, on the other side, is he telling Christians that whatever a governing body does, Christians have to somehow blindly obey. He is making a general statement about governments in general. A quick perusal of the Bible reveals that the people of God have always had a complex and sometimes ambiguous relationship with authority. And we even know when we peruse our Bible that sometimes Christians directly disobey governing authorities. Right? In Acts 4, 23-31, Peter and John heal a man who was born lame. Then they openly defy the rulers, their governing authorities, whenever they're asked to do something that would violate their conscience of faithfulness to Jesus. Paul himself defies the wishes of rulers and kings in the book of Acts. And of course, we know that Jesus did as well. More on him in a moment. So what Paul is advocating for, as you will see here in a minute, and all my points this morning will tie together, is for submission to governing authorities in their policing and civil functions. Governing authorities as night watchmen, if you will. Government whose purpose is to maintain order so that there is not anarchy. The two interpretations that you heard above that I quoted from a pastor and from a governing official in the United States totally miss the point. And then they take some interpretive hop, skip, and jump toward a very distorted, unbiblical stance. What those men do in their quote or in their interpretations of Romans 13 is divorce it from Romans chapter 12. When Paul talks about government, he's not giving us a way of renouncing the Sermon on the Mount when it's convenient for us. He's not saying, well, by the way, when it's convenient for you, you don't have to love your enemy. He's not saying that at all. Instead, what he's warning Christians against in Rome is obvious. Remember our context. The church in Rome was also made up not only of Roman Christians, but Jewish Christians who had one, one time been removed from the city of Rome for five years by the, what's called the Claudius Edict of A.D. 49. And they were not let back into the city, even those who were of professing Christian faith, until A.D. 54 because they were busy in rebellion and not paying taxes. So what he's warning them against is obvious when we read verse 6 and 7. This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. 
Romans 13 has an occasion. Romans 13 is often used to defend war, partisanship, injustice, and those things. Ironically, that is not even in the text. We read into the text and add our context into the original text when what is clear is Paul is simply saying this. This is about policing. It's about respecting the government. It's about paying your taxes. It's about Christians living a quiet life is what he'll say in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Live a quiet life in the empire. In other words, the wink-wink thing that maybe we wish you'd said is don't take part in violent rebellions because you're to live like Jesus. You're to be like Christ. Second thing I'll make a point on is this isn't just about policing. We need to realize that what Paul says here that is often missed is he says governments are God-established, which does not mean God-approved. I want that to sink in. This is what the text demands of us. We need to make it clear that God-established does not mean God-approved. Rather, the point is that God is to be considered greater than the governments, not equal to all the powers of the world. Lean in with me here for a sec. In the Christian way of life, even the best government in the world, if we could imagine the best government you could possibly think of, whatever that is, that government is still man-made and is not worthy of a Christian's allegiance. That allegiance has already been given to Jesus as king in our baptism. That's what your baptism is. And when we live out our baptism, nobody else gets our allegiance. Established is a word in Greek that means God is over and has ordered, not approved. A good example of that is a librarian would order the books in a library, but that doesn't mean she approves of all the book's content. Or another example of that was you may order your house and establish your house with certain rules as a parent, but that doesn't mean you approve of all your kids' conduct. Amen? Right? God has ordered your life and given you a way of living, but does he approve of everything you do? So why could we make this passage all of a sudden about, well, if government does it, it must mean God approves of it. No. That makes no sense in the much larger context of the Christian life. And this is absolutely clear in the whole of Scripture. And our interpretation of Romans 13 must connect not just with Romans 13, but with the entire word of God. So in Revelation 13, John, the revelator, he calls this same government a whore. <laughs> that's the word in Scripture. I'm sorry if that's offensive, but that's what he calls this same government. A beast. In Acts, Paul, over and over and again, is imprisoned by this government. He acts in rebellion for speaking about Jesus. And of course, Jesus goes before Pilate, a member of government, and in John 19.11, he has this back and forth with him, but in John 19.11, he says this to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. 
So in one sentence, Jesus acknowledges that Pilate has an established power while exposing Pilate for his abuse of power. I think it's also clear that if you go back to Romans 13, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, let every one of you be subject to governing authorities. He doesn't say, let everyone always obey governing authorities. Obedience would be about bending one's will. Subordination is about knowing your place. Paul isn't trying to convince unpatriotic Romans to support a particular emperor so that we, 2,000 years later, could use his words to have people support candidates that we prefer. Rather, what Paul is doing is working to convince them that the way of Jesus doesn't dabble in tax evasion or violent rebellions against the government The kingdom of Jesus and the people who live in it live different. They overcome evil with good. One more point as we wrap this up. I think it's important for us to remember this. If our interpretation of Paul doesn't serve Jesus, we've got it backwards. Paul is a servant of Christ. Jesus is not a servant of Paul. If Romans 13 isn't familiar with you this morning, it's probably because we often only use this in times where we want others to advocate for our guys when they're in power, when our team is in power. When war is being waged, when people are taking sides. But again, that is an egregious misapplication of this text. If this is how you see the text this morning, you really have to ask yourself a question. Am I comfortable with using Paul and his words to overcome Jesus and his? Scripture's point is Jesus Christ. Why not instead of using Romans 13 as a political card when convenient, we take Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and insist that Paul must line up with Jesus? That's how I'm going to interpret Scripture. Right? I think that's the way we all ought to interpret Scripture. That what Scripture's point is, is Paul's got to line up with Jesus. So Paul's words here have got to somehow mean I can keep living out the Sermon on the Mount in the way of Jesus in any situation. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. If you noticed or have been reading Romans 12, Romans 12 is Paul's take on the Sermon on the Mount. It is. Love your enemy. He's rewriting the Sermon on the Mount for Romans. He's trying to show them that we live out a different kind of way of life. To bless those that persecute you. To refuse revenge and retaliation. To act in love towards the enemy. To be genuine and practice hospitality. Your love must be sincere. That's what he's getting at. And so when he talks about government, he's talking about a different way of living. Not one that rebels and one that fights back and uses violence to get their way, but one that quietly trusts that the kingdom of God is mustard and yeast. That when we give a yes to Jesus, it works its way through the world and changes the world in unseen and unheard ways. If you're with me still this morning, do you believe that? I hope you do.
As I close, I hesitate to use this word, but please listen and lean in. You can crucify me later. Romans 13, and here's the word I hate to use, is a politic. It is a retelling of the Christian politic. Now, I know all of us, because we've been co-opted and taken captive by culture often, but we're supposed to not be. We're supposed to not be conformed, but be transformed. So you need to reevaluate your relationship with that word politic. When we think politic, we think partisanship, we think elephants, and we think donkeys. The word doesn't have anything to do with that. The politic, it, politic just means way of ordering your life. And Jesus had a politic. Jesus was political. He had a politic, a way of ordering his life. And his politic was you submit and you subvert. You live out a life of humble submission so that the world can see your sacrifice and your sacrifice will change the world. It's humility. It's love. It's mercy. It's kindness. This is what he does on the cross. He allows the powers to overtake him so that he can absorb them and forgive us. That's what he does. He submits. It's exactly what he was able to do in what we read at the first of worship in Mark chapter 12 when he talks about giving to Caesar. He says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give all things, give it to God. What he's doing is he's saying, hey, this is what's governing authorities are happening in the days, but I'm going to subvert Caesar because I'm going to tell you all things belong to God. And you may not be comfortable with the term, but that is our politic as followers of Jesus. Our politic is not bending the knee always, but it's living subject to living peacefully with others, loving our neighbor, doing good to our enemy, practicing radical hospitality to anyone and everyone, overcoming evil with good. It's submitting and subverting mustard and yeast, bringing heaven to earth. That is Romans 13. It's a passage in which Paul is trying to plead with people, don't start violent rebellions, pay your taxes, do what's good. It's a passage in which he's trying to say, look, Governments can do bad things, but know that God's got a plan. God's up to things. And it's a passage in which I believe Paul is not in contradiction with himself or in contradiction with Jesus, but he is speaking in line with them. And the reason I believe that is because I believe what I want to share with you, just thought of this this morning and wanted to share it with you and didn't have it in my notes. I believe what Paul is doing as I close this morning is his idea and his fulfillment of that idea found in Jesus Christ of what the kingdom of God will look like is found in Isaiah chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. Paul was a Jewish man who everything he knew in Scripture, when he saw Jesus and met Jesus on the Damascus Road, everything he knew in Scripture all of a sudden became illuminated, and he's like, this is it. This is my guy. Everything I've been waiting for, and I was the one trying to stop it. And so he changes his whole life, and he knows now that he is living out that kingdom here and now. He'll say that, Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
Our citizenship is in heaven. And so I believe his Romans 13 thoughts are influenced by Isaiah 2, a passage he would have known well, in which Isaiah says this, in the last days, code word for what we're living in now, since the resurrection, the last days, that already but not yet, in the kingdom, waiting for the full kingdom to come, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. So good. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Paul believes he's living in that interpretation. He's he's living in that fulfillment now. In other words, heaven has come to earth. And so we are walking in a way which the mountain of the Lord has been established, and we want all people to stream to it. And the way you get to them, what he's saying to the Romans, is the way you get people to stream to it is you don't start violent rebellions, and you pay your taxes, and you do good, and that's what he's saying to us. You want people to stream to the Lord? Follow his ways. Live in his path. Be salt. Be light. Be mustard. Be yeast. Be like Jesus. That's Romans 13, 1 through 7. You're welcome to disagree. You're welcome to come talk to me if you do. Uh, please do. I know that was not a rah-rah sermon like, oh man, I'm, I'm, uh, that's the most heartfelt sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> right? It's just teaching we've got to go through because it rhymes with Romans 12. This is how you live it out. May we be those people too. If you need anything this morning, we are, of course, here for you. And we love you. And we're excited to share Jesus with you. Let's stand together and sing.